This is Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. Hello, everybody. My name is Jacinto Ortega, and this is Chasing Encounters. Uh, we have yet another episode to delve into wonderful conversations about international education, English teaching, and so on and so forth. So we have a guest today who specializes in this area. Welcome to the show today, Phoebe, right? Yes. All right, Thank so we're going to start this podcast uh, to talk about, I always talk about, for some reason, I always talk about names and because, I don't know, I sort of got engaged with the idea of names and names are so important and then a little bit of an anecdote um, your name Phoebe mm -hmm. I, a while ago long you know like yourself I was an English teacher a long time ago I mean I have always been an English teacher mm -hmm. but a long time ago the name appeared in one of the English books and then all of the students kept pronouncing the name mm -hmm. uh, I think it's Poe or something like that Phobia Yeah, but not even that, because, mm -hmm. you know, in Spanish, we don't have this pH sound. Mm. So the pH, the, the, we don't have that, right? Yes. It always sounds like a P, so pewe, 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 you know? Right. So it's this idea that the people don't understand this, and then there is this expectation in the planet for the others to learn the Anglo names, mm. but not for the Anglo people to learn other others' names. names. So... You know, when I came to Canada, it's, it's still hard for people to learn how to pronounce my name, which mm. I, which is, which, it's fine to me if you don't know how to pronounce it, but, but it's it's good always to ask, right? Yes. So back in the day, obviously they had to learn the hard way that it's not Pewe or Pewe, but it was mm -hmm. Phoebe, and then it's a different type of mm -hmm. spelling. But it's part of the idea of learning from other cultures, you know, intercultural communication and all those sorts of things. So now mm -hmm. I know. So now that I introduced the idea of what I understood about your name, is, is there any meaning on the name? It's very intriguing that you brought up uh, my name um, because Phoebe is my English name. I do have Korean name, which is Ngyang. Uh, and I can assure you, 99% of the time, people screw up pronouncing my name. And I was so fed up. Uh, you know what? I don't want to spend, you know, so much time and energy having to correct, you know, how to pronounce my name. Or So I, I think I chose Phoebe uh, as my English name a while ago, almost like I think maybe 25 years ago, um, as a way, like, I just don't want to deal with this, you know, um, confusion and also mispronunciation and having to explain myself all of those hassles so that's how I came up with um, my name and Phoebe became my uh, my identity in a way and when I'm speaking in English you know um, this is my identity and as you know like you your uh, podcast is looking at language identity and all of those things and names are very very closely related to that um, identity for sure So um, some people have asked me, so why don't you just stick to, you know, your Korean name? And and once again, the reason is, you know, oh, my God, I just don't want to go through that hassle that right. that type of um, as unfortunate as it is. Um, I, I do think that I do have two different identities when I speak in Korean. That's my one identity. 
And when I speak in English, I do have another identity. So I'm, I feel actually quite comfortable with my name now. That's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I was about to ask you that question about whether you have thoughts or not of going back, going back, quote unquote, <laughs> going back to your real Korean name or not, right? Right. Now that we, we understand after so long that why we, did we have to change the name? Mm. I'm saying because at some point, long time ago, I used to tell people, say, okay, my name is Jesse. Okay. It's easy for them to just right. Jesse instead of trying to pronounce Jesse, Yahim, Yahem, what, mm. you know, let's just say Jesse. Mm. But then now that I'm, I'm at this stage in my life that is very critical and I'm, I'm very self-aware, so now I just tell the people that this is my name and this is how I pronounce it and mm -hmm. this is how I expect people Good to for pronounce you. it. Mm -hmm. Because the expectation that we people from elsewhere we have to pronounce the Michaels, mm. the Britneys, and yes. you name it. And it's hard for, for us yes. to pronounce those names. Yeah. Right? So mm -hmm. why don't the other also Where try at least mm -hmm. to pronounce my name? Right. Why is, why is it always we are the ones who ta have to adapt mm -hmm. to the North or to the Anglo way of beings mm -hmm. and why they don't necessarily try to adapt? Mm -hmm. to our ways but then it's a question that you don't necessarily yeah. have to answer it, uh, it also for our audience maybe think about why is the why mm -hmm. what are the layers behind all of these decisions very interesting question um as i said you know um my my decision to uh go with phoebe uh goes way back and you know almost 25 years ago and i i um I also studied German when I was in my high school and university, and I went to Germany, and nobody could pronounce my name once again. And as you know, like every language has different ways of pronouncing vowel sounds, and so the way they pronounced my Korean name, Eun-gyang, was just even worse, because the EU becomes oi, as you know. <laughs> So it just sounded terrible. I just like I just don't even want to bother. You know, imagine, you know, yeah, it's yeah. just so shockingly bad. You know, right, I don't even right, want to like right. put any effort to correct them. You know, sure, sure. so I think um, you know, looking back, you know, I was much younger at the time. You know, I, I think I just had no patience in a way, mm -hmm. and also um, I should have maybe I could have been a little bit more assertive. You know, you know what? You should learn how to pronounce my name. Yeah, that would have been fantastic, but. I think at that time, uh, you know, like it was more of a um, kind of convenience uh, yeah. choice. I And then, you know, as I said, you know, um, I have developed a new identity, you know, when I speak in English. So I am quite comfortable with the, this, you know, uh, identity being Phoebe Kang instead of Eun-gyang Kang, you know. It's, it's actually, uh, I have adopted and I have accepted it, you know. So as, as much as I, I agree with you, your position, you know, and I, I think that there has to be a lot more kind of concerted effort from, you know, the Western world to learn other names. But I'm telling my personal story and this is where I'm at. No, definitely. I agree with you. And like you said earlier, this podcast is especially about those languages, those identities, those cultures, right? And then identity does not have to be either or, mm. or, or a fixed thing, but it's mm -hmm. something that evolves, something that changes. Yes, it's fluid. I mean, yeah, Exactly. And I agree with you. It's not something that 
we, we, we even have to sell to people out there to buy it, buy mm-hmm. my identity. Right. So I like that about it. So moving on to the next question, which is similarly related to, to that. It's about your, your cultural identity. I know I understand that you are from Korea, right? Mm-hmm. And then do you tell us a little bit about your culture, yeah, where you're coming from, maybe a little bit uh, of uh, what you earlier uh, at the earliest stage in your life when you were younger. A little bit about the culture because uh, one of the reasons why we do this is a lot of our folks who are listening to this may not know much about different cultures and my goal with this mm-hmm. podcast is so people are aware of the different cultures that are out there. Maybe you give mm-hmm. us some highlights. Well, that's a very big question, <laughs> but uh, I think I can share uh, my experience and, you know, with through that, you know, hopefully I can uh, share a little bit of um, Korean culture in the story. So I was born and raised in the city called uh, Busan, which is the second biggest city in South Korea. It's a port city, close, very close to Japan. Um, so um, I grew up in a city with over four million, million people. You know, it's a very uh, dense city, um, and uh, I all I was always interested in um, kind of. I was always curious about uh, other cultures, and when I was first introduced to to English, you know, I was just so fascinated, you know, mm-hmm. and wow, like this is so cool. Like I can actually communicate with uh, the the rest of the world, you know, with this tool. So um, I was quite intrigued, you know, when I first, you know, started learning English, and uh, and you know, I, as as you may know, and you know, like uh, English language ability is a big social capital, a cultural capital in South Korea. So when you are good at that, you know, then you you gain certain level of uh, respect and status in a way, you know. So. I think I really put a lot of effort into it, and then um, I, I had a chance to travel uh, Singapore when I was fairly young, about 13 years old, without my parents. I was visiting my uh, cousin there, and that was very interesting experience outside of South Korea, and I felt even more motivated you know, when I came back from Singapore um, to learn English. So I pursued a slightly kind of... Um, you know, not regular uh, education. Um, when I went to my high school, I went to foreign language high school. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But um, this this high school focuses on uh, students in learning, you know, multiple languages. Right. So there were four departments. There was um, Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, Japanese, German, and French departments. So I was accepted to Mandarin Chinese department, and we all had to learn English as a common language. And you have Chinese, right? And the Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, and then you have to pick one more extra uh, foreign language. So in that case, uh, I chose German. Mm-hmm. So it, throughout my high school time, you know, like the, the concentration on language learning was really, really heavy there. And I loved it. You know, and that was one of the reasons why I chose to go to that school, because I felt like, wow, if I cannot, you know, continue to learn English in a meaningful way, meaning that, you know, and having conversations and other types of activities, I thought, oh, my God, my my high school time is going to be so terrible. So I I fought... fought really hard to go to that high school and my parents were thinking that why do you do this to yourself you know just go to regular girls university a girls high school you know 
So I really had to put up some fight. But, you know, once I went, I had zero uh, regrets. And I learned uh, English and continued to learn English. And then I learned Mandarin uh, quite a bit. So I was fairly fluent back then. And then I also learned German. So so that is an interesting aspect of uh, Korean education. You know, they do value certain aspect of like subjects, for example, like languages, you know, or science and math. And so they have specialty high schools there. So I don't know if that is still the case, but, you know, in my generation, that was um, fairly common. Uh, so that's how I continue to learn languages. And and then I went to university and I studied German language and literature continuously. And also I studied English language education. So that's how I kind of hope to be an English language teacher, which has fairly good reputation and social respect as a um, people say, as a, as especially as a woman, you know, like people respect. And if you're an English language teacher in a public school system, mm-hmm. people um, give a lot of respect for that, um, wow. for that role. But I was very unhappy with the idea that, you know, my life will be set. You know, if I become an English language teacher in a public school system, it's a wonderful job in Korea. Nobody would like argue argue that, but you can just see what your life would look like for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So I, I was not happy with that kind of mundane in, in my mind, right, um, right. very routine and uh, very stable uh, aspect of it. So once again, I fought with my parents. You know, I said I would like to go to Canada. Um, I really want to go out and use the language I've been learning so long, and I want to challenge myself, you know. So I convinced my parents, and then I uh, I came to Brock University in Canada in 2003, and to do my um, my master's degree, um, and that was quite the culture shock, not only culturally, academically as well, and uh, and the notion uh, of English language teacher in Korea and in Canada was just so different and I really had a hard time understanding you know where do these ESL teachers fit in in a society in Canada I couldn't figure it out hmm. for a while I really had to do some research so where do these teachers work and where do they belong you know from the government's point of view how does it work you know and I had such such a kind of difficult time to to understand the status of ESL teachers in, in Canada. It was quite the journey for me to really see the big picture. So, so here I'm at, here I'm at, you know, in in Canada. So I don't know if I really touched on a lot of Korean culture, but I think I try to talk about, um, um, I guess, education a little bit, and also, um, I guess, women. Uh, perspective on like uh, mm-hmm. what is considered as a good job you know so that's that's something I kind of kind of fought against in a way that kind mm-hmm. of uh, stereotypes mm-hmm. so. no I hear you because I relate to what you're saying in the sense that the English language has become this symbol of respect and status and power and reputation not only necessarily in Korea but elsewhere right Right, a lot of EFL yeah, uh, countries. Yeah, but yes. then you go, you touch a good point. 
does it have the same connotation in Canada to be an ESL teacher? No. <laughs> See, that's exactly, and then the, then the big question is why? Why is it, if, if anybody goes to anywhere in the planet, let's say Latin America, Africa, India, East Asia, what, you name it, as an English teacher, mm -hmm. most likely you're going to be successful, yeah. respected, yes. you gain a status, you have power, probably a, a well-paid uh, uh, well mm -hmm. job. But why is it that in Canada, and let's, let's talk about closer here, not necessarily the whole Canada, although you may know more about Canada, but let's say Toronto, Toronto area, Ontario, why is this, this, this mismatch? I can only speak from my own experience and my perspective, but I think I came to the conclusion why why do ESL teachers struggle so much to gain respect, you know, in the society? I think it's partly because still I think there is this perception around the you know, people that English language teaching is not part of education. Because when you look at uh, where ESL teachers are situated in Canada, especially in Ontario, so there are several sectors, right? There's a university college sector. They're usually associated as EAP, English, uh, English is for academic purposes. And, and there's a private schools everywhere, especially in Toronto. And then you see settlement and link and ESL, uh, ESL teachers who now are part of IRCC, right, Immigration uh, Refugee Canadian Citizens, or a provincial level of some level of that. And there are a small number of ESL teachers at the school board, then they are under Ministry of Education. So as you see, like a university college sector, teachers are sort of considered as a private sector, you know, because there's no regulations around um, who can become an EAP teacher. It's really, really depending on the school. So what I'm saying is the, the criteria from you know U of T may not be the same as you know Ryerson, you know, like something like that. It's right. really depending on the university's uh, take on it, you know. Right, right. So, so this this makes ESL teachers' job very messy. There's mm. no regulating body, one regulating body, and the, the because when you look at the history of ESL, it a lot of it happened in the church basement, mm. as part of. Um, you know, helping, you know, new immigrants settle in, you know. So it, I think historically, unfortunately, it wasn't really considered as legitimate education. But we are fighting against that notion and perception, you know, with uh, in all of the work you guys are doing in LLE. But I think when you look at it from the big macro picture, there is no one governing body, you know, that recognizes this is education, you know. So it's always situated as kind of peripheral kind of sector, right, in an educational field. So I think that makes it very difficult to come together as one, you know, when you think about all the ESL teachers. And there's quite the divide. When I, I was the uh, president of Tesla Niagara for six years, and that really helped me see this uh, divide, you know, in an ESL. Uh, how uh, kind of fragmented, you know, the, the, the parts are, you know. And I was coming from university college sector, 
and I learned a lot about uh, ESL settlement and link programs thanks to that uh, experience that I was exposed to different parts of you know ESL uh, landscape. But then I realized, oh my gosh, this is very very difficult to bring everybody together, you know, and they're they're they're. You know the student demographics so different. You know, and also like the funding sources are different, goals are different. You know, it was such a kind of um, it was eye opener for me. But at the same time, I realized, wow, this is a challenging task to bring everybody together. One of the big things that you said in the in the previous comment, which I like it, that that why is this failure? Why is this that? English teachers do not have the prestige prestige that they should have in elsewhere is because there is this perception that ESL it is not part of education of the mm -hmm. regular education mm -hmm. that people get here and it is not quote unquote legitimate education we know it is a legitimate mm -hmm. education but I believe because it's education directed towards the immigrants and the newcomers then this type of education is somehow put aside. Exactly. And that's what yeah. the problem is. It's, it's just, I think a lot of people see that as um, kind of skill building, almost like a vocational kind of, skills, um, yeah. you know what I mean? That kind yeah. of uh, idea. And when you look at ESL in the school board system, it's under special ed. Hmm. That is not mainstream we are, education. We are special. We are very special, that is very true. <laughs> But yes, you know what I'm talking about and how, how difficult it is to gain that status, you know, to, to be recognized as, once again, quote unquote, mm. legitimate. You know, it's very difficult. Um, I'm torn, though. Like, I fought um, in my own way, you know, like to gain uh, more recognition in the community and also uh, more professionalization of the profession. Mm. That's, that was some of the work I did through TESOL Niagara, which is a, a local chapter from TESOL Ontario. Okay. Um, but there's always a, a, a challenge, you know, I think within and external challenges, you know, like there's not a lot of funding coming in. Mm -hmm. And also within, amongst ourselves, you know, I find because we come from different fragmented uh, parts of, you know, ESL, it's very difficult to have a like, kind of a common ground. You know, they all have, for example, you know, Link ESL uh, instructors are now all about PBLA. I don't know if you heard of that term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a portfolio-based language assessment. Thank you. That's another acronym, yes, by the that's, way. That's another one. PBLA. So that is like everybody's interested in how do I do this right? You know, the PBLA part, right? Where. And, and university college sector instructors have no clue what that even means. And, and they have other types of you know, concerns. So I remember whenever I uh, organized the conference, it was so difficult to balance the, the, you know, the interest, right? Like, uh, so we always had to bring, you know, let's talk about for this workshop, it's only for Link and ESL teachers. This, this workshop is for university college, but then they're never together in the same space to really share what their concerns are, right? So, but then if I don't do that, then people don't come to, yeah. to PD uh, workshops. So I remember feeling extremely torn you know, about that reality, um, but at least you know, through that experience, it gave me such a kind of rich uh, understanding of where a, a ESL educators 
are situated across Ontario. That that really helped me see why are we doing this way? Why are we in this situation? Yeah. Something that you said a little bit earlier was the idea of this macro picture mm-hmm. that there is no govern governing body that mm-hmm. oversees this field or regulates right. necessarily this field. Mm-hmm. I wonder how does all of this, what you just mentioned earlier, how does all of this fit in your research agenda mm. in the general broad field of education, leadership, and education? How does that work mm. for you in terms of research? Interesting question. Um, when I first applied for my doctoral program, um, I was already working in the field of, you know, TESOL over 10 years. And uh, one of the things that I really felt uh, difficult as a practitioner at that time was I can handle my classroom, you know, with my language instruction, my experience, my, uh, my philosophy can really, you know, uh, transferred to my students in the classroom situation. But as you can imagine, you know, my, my students, 95% of the students were uh, international students from all over the world. And they were already experiencing certain level of culture shock and all of those kind of mental, uh, cultural, and socio-cultural barriers. So language instruction is one part of um, part of support, one part of help that I could offer. But I realized, you know, talking to my students, you know, they were experiencing and so many different layers of difficulties, you know inside and outside the classrooms and I felt um, very very um, how can I say almost demoralized you know like Mm. outside of the classroom there wasn't much I could do to help my students and there wasn't any system or uh, support in place for these students can go to you know and has kind of um, very easy access. None of that was the case because especially the students I was teaching, EAP students, are considered as non-credit students. I don't know if you know that term. Basically, so they are, they're, a lot of the students have conditional offer. Have you heard of that term? I so, heard, yes. So what that means is basically the university would accept these students if they don't have, let's say, IELTS 6.5 or 7 or something like that, then you can come, but you have to pass the highest level of our EAP ESL class. So they're in a bit of a limbo situation. Right. They're in a bit of a gray area as a student uh, in the university. So there's a lot of hesitance or reluctance uh, from the university to f- uh, offer help for these guys because they're not exactly yet to be credit students so they're not you know what I mean so they're kind of like almost like an invisible and a gray area students so it was so difficult to get them to get any help so it it it, it would have been helpful if there was a you know a proper leadership or uh really uh you know robust policy I think that would have helped but I think my students were constantly left in that gray area. Mm-hmm. So it was always a case by case situation. So so as I I felt very frustrated, you know, as a as a person who came to Canada as an mm-hmm. international student in the first place. 
So I really, really took my student success seriously. And it was, I realized at one point, okay, this kind of student success can happen beyond language uh, support. I need to see this in a more kind of robust and a comprehensive um, perspective. Otherwise, it's going to be uh, difficult for these guys. So that's partly why I came out of language literacy and education field and I, I, I you know, apply for a policy and leadership um, program. So what I'm trying to do now <coughs> is I would like to I would like to look at international students' equity issue. So currently, I have done some um, preliminary um, document uh, analysis on internationalization strategies from different universities. And almost no strategies document talk about equity issue. Although they constantly talk about and emphasize on enrollment from the international students. So, so that says a lot, I think. That says <laughs> the, the willingness or unwillingness, right? Um, how they want to approach uh, this issue of internationalization, revenue generating, plus, you know, what, what do we do with international students? I find this has been uh, a topic that I felt very close to my heart for many, many years because, because I have experienced the barriers myself as a practitioner, so I can only imagine uh, international students feeling probably quite lost, you know, when they actually need to access certain um, level of support. So my, so that's roughly where I'm at, you know, my uh, topic would be definitely about um, international students' experience and how the institutions frame equity and how that affect international students. That's where I'm at. You know, that's a very interesting topic because it's sort of related to another guest that I had this week, yeah. Wang Xiao, talk mm -hmm. about a similar, like yes. she's on the other side to bring the solution. Okay. I don't know if you heard that podcast, but if not, then you should. I, I should, yes. <laughs> Mang she, and I actually, we, we were in the same panel one time right. in a conference because okay. our topics were quite related. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, because it seems like on one hand, we have this idea of international education, mm -hmm. students coming to Canada, internationalization right. strategies about equity on one hand, but on the other hand is this revenue generation. So yes. in other ones, we want students coming in, sure, but then the question is they're not helping them. Right. And then the answer is on Monk Shell's presentation was I have developed this handbook mm. to support both administration and the students to mitigate mm. a little bit. I'm not saying it's the complete solution, but to right. mitigate a little bit. But I like yeah. I like your take on, on, mm -hmm. on addressing the issue from the policy yeah. point of view. I think I think what Mong did sounds like uh, is a great um, start, you know, to even generate the talk discussion because I think I think it's to be honest with you, I feel that higher education in Canada are going through some level of identity crisis because 
you know, like we we are supposed to be this noble academic institutions, you know, like you know, creating knowledge, disseminating knowledge, you know, to the community. But behind the scenes, we're struggling to, you know, balance the books. And uh, what do we do? What do we do? You know, so the easiest way is bringing in international money where there's no regulation, right? So they can set uh, international students tuition whatever they want. There's zero regulations on that. While they have. Um, they have to be mindful of how they uh, set the domestic students' fee. So it's like a swan, right? Like on in, on a lake, right? Like a, they they look so like noble and elegant, you know, on the surface, but be below the water, it doesn't look good, you know. <laughs> so so I I I feel the pain. I feel the pain of these uh, universities and colleges where they. Their uh, funding sources are so scarce now, and they don't know what to do with this change. In the meantime, international students is a quick fix. Yeah. Um, but the but then what happens is uh, international students' money they bring in is supposed to not cost them money. So I find they're reluctant to actually redistribute the resources back to the international students because their money is supposed to come in as right like a uh, income not go out so but but that's very short-sighted you right. know when you think right. of it you know like if you really want to retain these students I mean international students have the entire world to choose from True. they don't have to come to U of T right. you know they could go to England they could go to US they could go to Australia they could go to other places yeah. Or Germany, where their tuition is for free. But we're the best. So, <laughs> we're number so, four in the world, according to rankings yesterday. Right. I, I really wondered how what the criteria was, but um, but it's good to see the great number. But I think we we also have to walk the walk, you know, talk to talk and walk to walk, right? So um, I, I really think that in the long term. Um, Measure. I think there has to be more systemic and structural support for international students, where you know we we don't have any holes and gaps. You know, like because it's so easy to have that, right? Like um, you know, there's more and more emphasis on mental health, but are we really uh, uh, addressing international students' mental health issues? Because that comes with multiple layers, right? It's not only the language barrier. There's other types of different adjustments they have to make while domestic students may have different types of issues. So that's another area I think people really need to look into. And um, so, yeah, I think I think it's great to bring all these international students yeah, to the campus. When I was working at Niagara College in Welland, and I was actually saying to my students sitting in the room who were all from all over the world, and I told them, you know, please remember you are providing international experiences to these domestic students. How else would they actually experience, you know, this type of uh, multiple perspectives, right? So I, because my students, some of my students, when I ask them to introduce themselves, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, I'm sorry, my English is terrible. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, I had to tell them, don't you ever say that again. <laughs> Anywhere you go, you know, you are, you are already a bilingual, right? And and as I said, you know what you bring to this campus is just you know invaluable. You you have to remember your worth, and you you know. So when we talked about at the very beginning, how like 
kind of colonial view of like language, right? English especially, right? So that a lot of my students from overseas, from the EFL stu- situation, they carry that back to Canada and they project themselves. Somehow they're inferior, but that really like bothers me and I would like to really help them change their view of how they see themselves. You know, they, they actually add value so much more, right? So. Yeah, I really love it when you say, and you, you put it that way, in which international students coming to Canada specifically are bringing value. And then, unfortunately, they're not being seen as, 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 as valuable, yeah. right? But mm-hmm. you, I agree with you because with my students also, I tell them exactly the same thing. Do not apologize for your English because you're already coming with something. Yes. And you, we should celebrate yes. that as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, push it back. Right. In the back burner, right? So exactly. you're bringing this international student experience. This is invaluable to any campus anywhere in the planet, right? They're bringing the heritage, their, you know, their culture that we should be yes. thankful for all of these exactly. things, right? Mm-hmm. So that actually brings me to the final question, which mm-hmm. is about you, you were saying how you were sort of experiencing some sort of cultural shock of what's happening to these students. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, you provide sort of a solution, both on a pedagogical level and a sort of policy level, right? And I, I learned about your keynote uh, speech at the University of Toronto, which is sort of related to cultural responsive pedagogy in teaching English to speakers of other languages. So maybe you want to help us see a light at the end of the tunnel, both on a pedagogical level and maybe on a sort of policy level? Is there, a, is there a hope out there? I think there is hope. Um, based on uh, some of the research I've read, I think there has been a lot more uh, critical uh, kind of literature out there about internationalization and also uh, what we are not doing, you know, uh, for international students. So I think uh, that movement gives me hope. Um, but at the same time, you know, like literature is literature, but ultimately uh, it has to be translated into action. So you just mentioned, uh, you know, on a policy level and a curriculum level, I think there's a lot of room and a lot of will, at least. I think there's more will out there. Um, before, probably people like either they didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. But right now, I think there's more uh, research coming out. And we, we have to provide uh, meaningful support for the students. And also, we have to have a buy-in from all stakeholders from the campus. I think that emphasis cannot be ignored. So I think it's there has to be uh, more rigorous uh, looking at policy. And if there's any hole or gap that we have not included international students in a certain things, that's something I'm interested in doing myself. And then in a curriculum-wise, you know, like... Let's let's talk about EAP first. So in terms of English language instruction, I think there's a lot of room that we can bring in international perspective in a, in a curriculum a part of it. And I think thankfully, uh, when you look at um, EAP or ESL textbooks, I think there is some, um, you know, quite a bit of effort from the public publishers to bring in these uh, multiple perspectives, which is very, very encouraging. But then the problem is uh, curriculum, internationalizing uh, 
internationalizing curriculum. You know, it's not happening in an undergrad or a grad level of courses. So that area needs to be actually looked at a little bit more. It's more challenging because of the academic freedom the professors have, but but I think there is a growing number of literature. Uh, people are saying, you know, international students' voice needs to be heard, and they are knowledge generator, not just the consumer. So I think that cannot be ignored, you know, in this kind of uh, phase of internationalization, because people are sitting in the room, like, let's say, for example, there are 20 students in the classroom, let's say 15 of them are international students, and we're talking about Canadian education only. What is the point of that? You know, let's bring in everybody's experience and then, you know, like, learn from each other. And also, what can we learn from, let's say, you know, Colombia, and what can we learn from South Korea, you know, like, I think everybody has to have a voice, and I think a curriculum and assessment needs to be designed to bring these voices together. I think you just said it. I was going to ask, what should a teacher do right now in their classes? And you mentioned it. We should bring those diversity assets yes. in the classroom and celebrate who mm -hmm. they are and start learning from each other's students and experiences. Mm -hmm. Yes, Higher education is an identity crisis. There is a will, but we need to look to look more in depth and be more rigorous about what's happening at a policy level. Yes. Phoebe, thank you so much for coming to the show today. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so no much. No problem. Yesi. Thanks. This is Jesse Ortega, and this is Chasing Encounters. Have a good rest of the week, everybody. <laughs>